Now, a busy old day on the radio and plenty to catch your ear. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And you've sent us in a photograph of the ring. I did. And <laughs> Siobhan, it's the same ring. It's, it's just, yes. I don't believe that. Oh my God. So the Irish Dental mm-hmm. Association, you know, they have highlighted that three quarters of all 15-year-olds have some decay in their permanent teeth. I don't know if you've ever seen, Richard, in, in the long-term car park at Dublin Airport, that these massive hairs, like they're huge, the size of big dogs. And I just wonder, did somebody see one and think, oh, that's the wallaby? When there was a lady going to Barcelona on a holidays and she sent us an email to say that she was on takeoff, she's seen the wallaby on the runway. There you, you see? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And we'll start on the Today programme with Claire Byrne and early bin collections keeping people awake. Brian O'Connell was looking at the issue in the morning. Brian, tell me about the man who isn't sleeping in Cork. <laughs> Good morning. We know many refuse companies start quite early in the morning in most places. There are limits in place on when your bins can be collected. But one man got in touch with me. He says often in the city centre, those limits go out the window and collections take place much earlier, he feels, than permitted times. In fact, his sleep has been so disrupted, he's actually taken recordings of the early morning refuse collection alarm clock that he's woken by most mornings. And we're going to get to that because um, there are uh, general rules in place that refuse can only be collected between the hours of 6am and 10pm but this man told me in his area in Cork City Centre this just isn't happening and what's more because there are so many different refuse companies now the noise disruption has been spread over many days. This is Brian and he walked me through his street. We're just walking up the road now and my complaint is at four o'clock nearly on the clock. Most days, definitely five out of seven, these huge rubbish trucks come up here and this is only a residential area and they collect all these rubbish. You can see the bins out here now. Yeah, we can see we're looking at probably about six to seven bins on the street at the moment. And like all this, you know, in the old days, you used to call it flatland. Like that building there has seven apartments in it. There's a huge number of buildings here with the noise at four o'clock every morning. So the bin goes on, you know, when you have to try to get the rubbish out of it. So bring it down, four o'clock every morning. And I'm not a sleep expert, but I do know that I can never get back to sleep again. And that can't be right. And does it just happen one morning? It, It seems to be every morning. And this is because um, there are a number of different companies now operating in the area, whereas maybe years ago you might have had the one collection. In the old days you had Cork City Council and they would come on a Tuesday, so we would forgive that. They seem to come whenever they want, but it's always like four o'clock in the morning, between four and half past four, and it's as loud. And this isn't commercial waste, because commercial waste, they can come at any hours, it's dependent on when businesses are closed. This is domestic. This is 100% domestic uh, and it's funny because my business is on the other side of the road and I'm commercial and they tend to come from my rubbish at about half two in the afternoon. A good night's sleep is incredibly important. I have not had a good night's sleep for about two and a half years and I'm waiting for these trucks to come at four o'clock in the morning. And I suppose we're looking for people to live in our city centres. We're looking for people to live over the shop. We're looking for people to move back in, aren't we? Well, I only said that to somebody. I would encourage people to stay in the suburbs. I mean, this is not New York. Four is disrupting your deep sleep, which you never get back.
So just to pick up on the point, Claire, there are no time limits on commercial collections, but I could see uh, these were domestic bins on the street. And also this person, just to prove the extent of this disruption, he had made multiple video recordings between the hours of 4am and half past five. He told me about them and I included just a short compilation at the end of this clip of those sounds. So you've sent me some, some early morning recordings. They're not of birds. And... No, they're not of birds. Uh, it's a narrow street and it's all residential. So you can see, you know, it really contains the noise. So when these giant trucks, and I sent you one video where there was three trucks that they used this as a major route. And this is a small street. So you could have three trucks flying up here and the noise with them is phenomenal. And the recordings you sent me are all between 4 a.m. and half five in the morning? They are indeed, yeah, all, all that time. And unfortunately, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a, a morning person, but these people are, are making me a morning person. feel sorry for him. It sounds like he's in the middle of an industrial <laughs> unit. Now we should say Brian, there are conditions often attached to refuse collection permits, aren't there? Yes, and these permits, I mean the City Council don't issue collection permits. It's the role of the National Waste Collection Permit Office so there are a whole series of restrictions um, in place. So for example, between the hours of 6am and 10pm and then particular areas that have certain speed limits you can't enter at certain times. Interestingly, because of COVID or during COVID, a lot of these restrictions restrictions were removed but this um, removal of the restrictions is due to end in September 2022 so maybe our friend in Cork may get some more sleep back in September. Let's hope. Brian O'Connell reporting from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon an emotional reunion with a very special ring. Siobhan Colgio on the live line. Will you, will you remind us, because we have a large file upstairs of letters and communication we get in, but for various reasons, we aren't able to get them on air on that particular day. And the reason, I might as well tell you, Siobhan, to be brutally honest, at our meeting, the reason we decided that we wouldn't do your item that day was because yeah. you said, I know this is a one, one it's a probably a one in a billion chance of finding its way back to me. And when we said, what hope have we got? What what happened, Siobhan? Um, so I was travelling out um, at a Dublin airport on the 4th of August with my daughter. Yeah. Um, sorry, every time I talk about it, sorry. And, um, Take your time. <laughs> you know, it was we were flying out like a quarter to six that evening and um, we left the house. And, you know, I was kind of in a bit of a hurry. Yeah getting things ready, thinking about the queues at the airport. So yeah, yeah. I took my tree rings, which um, I've always worn. At the, you know, I have a lot of rings, but there's tree rings I always wear, my wedding ring, my engagement ring, and a dress ring. Yeah. And being the day it was, I was a bit warm. The age I am, I was a bit sweating. So I, I shoved my rings into my purse, into a pouch of my purse. Okay. And I got to the airport, and I said, oh, I'll put them on later when I've settled down a bit. Um, my daughter and I went through Terminal 1 that day and we were flying out with Ryanair to Salute. And when we landed in Salute, sorry. Take your time. <laughs> sorry. 
How long? Well, 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 I'd help. I'd, I'll ask a few questions. How long? Yeah. How long have you had the rings? Um, twenty-five years. And where did you buy them? Um, I bought it in you know the the McDowell Happy Ring House on oh, the country. Oh, like opposite the GPO. Yeah, yeah. It was just one of those things years ago. I used to go, go shop with my mom in town, like when I was younger. So you're and in I'd the you're in the airport. You're hassled like everyone is in the airport these yeah. days, to no fault of anybody. You you, you think you were near gate one one six, the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And you, that's uh, yeah. when you you rem- recall, which has probably been very smart on your part, that's, this is when it happened, because you opened you, your purse. Yeah, I was like frustrating, sorry, flustering that time as well, because when I opened my purse to pay for coffees, whatever, yeah. um, I, I thought my bank card was missing. Okay. So I was, I, you know, there was a queue behind me waiting, obviously, to get served, and I was panicking, like, yeah. God, where's my where bank card? And I was... I was looking really hard in my purse. So when I landed in in Salou that evening and I went to put my rings on me and when that engaged ring was missing, well, I was like, holy God. And then, I don't know, like, you know, I'd been to a duty-free, I'd been to Burger King with my daughter, but that's, I don't know why, for some reason I'm thinking, was it around gate 116 where that cafe okay. bar is that it might have fallen out? And this was on August the 4th? Yeah, correct, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you've checked with last property... Did you check on the plane itself? Yeah, we did. So immediately when, you know, it was it was just about that the plane was about to land and I opened my purse and I said to my daughter, oh God, the rings, the, my, my, my gauge ring's not here. Yeah. And so when the plane landed, um, we waited for everybody to get off the plane and my daughter and I were down on our hands and knees and we were calling around and making sure that it wasn't there, but we couldn't see anywhere. Okay. And it's a quite a, you sent us in a photograph, it's quite a distinctive ring, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a gold ring with a diamante. Yeah. Look, it's, it's not by any means of huge value, it's more yeah. sentimental value that, as I said, I know it's like looking for, a, you know, a pin in a haystack. So then Joe introduced another Joe to the story, Joe Holden. Now, would you believe, Siobhan, that yesterday we got a phone call yeah. from a man called... Joseph Holden. Joe. You there, Joe? Okay. Talk to Joe. Where is Joe? How are you? Joe, how Hi. are you? Hi. Now, this is your one in a million man. Joe Holden, okay. why did you contact Liveline yesterday? Because, Joe, I was travelling to Palermo on the 4th of August. Okay. And I was going through Terminal 1. Yeah. Between 4 and 5 o'clock. Right. And I came upon this lovely little solitaire ring. And I decided not to hand it up to security. And it just felt a bit awkward. Okay. So I said I'd hold on to it. And been the son of an ex-guard, yeah. I do my own research when I got back from holidays. Well done. So I'm back now. And I found your show yesterday. Yeah. And there you go. And you've sent us in a photograph of the ring. I did. And Siobhan, it's the same ring. It's it's just the same ring. Yes. I don't believe that. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. That is... Well, unless... I can't believe it. I'm so happy. Well, unless there was another ring lost. But it's... uh, I'm looking at the... You sent us in a a black and white photograph. Yeah. I'm looking at a... A colour photograph from Joseph and it's the same shape the, the diamond in the middle and the two oh the two gold r- wrappings around it like almost two arms so to speak yeah that's it and yeah, then it's, yeah. there's a blue 
now this could be the, the the flash in the camera, but there's a blue reflection coming up off the off the diamond, so to speak. Do you think that's it? Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. Sometimes depending which way the light yeah. shines on it, there is. Oh my god, I can't believe that you. And where <laughs> talk about one in a million? Oh, yeah. Joe, well, one, one in a billion. It was one in a billion. Joe, where where did you find it again? Well, as I say, Joe, I was going through. Uh, Terminal 1 at 4 o'clock on the 4th of August and I was going up to get uh, a drink for myself and my wife and it was just on the counter where you, oh where you pay the barman. Oh my God. So I decided to so you look after it myself for the, for the few weeks that I was away on the basis of well done well I'd hopefully find the owner when, when we come back from holidays. And he did fair play to him. That's Joe along with Lucky Siobhan on the live line. And on Today with Claire Byrne, it was good news for Winnie the Wallaby. Winnie the Wallaby has been found safe and well in County Tyrone and I'm joined on the line now by Richard Beattie, who's owner of Glen Park Estate, where Winnie lives. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, how are you? I'm good. Great news. Great news. Great great news. We were talking to uh, Killian McLaughlin from Wild Ireland about this the other day because he has wallabies and he lost one at one stage in Bundoran and he was saying you need to run fast and have a big net to catch them. That's definitely, definitely true. We're just Tell me about the search for Winnie and how you managed to find her. She wasn't far from where she escaped. No, one of the search started for Winnie um, on Sunday evening after about a half four on Sunday evening and we searched day and night for her to get us. And um, we just we have this, actually we're starting to give up hope of finding her because we've had more reportings of her being found all over parts of Ireland and we just started to know how far to go to look for her. But um, we had a fellow, um, Derek Story, who does a bit of work um, in the in Glen Park, and he was in yesterday evening. And he says, "Oh, I have a friend here from who Ahaho, and um, a fellow Tony Smith, and he's a deer stalker, and um, he came down with his night vision, goggles, and heat detection, and um, he was fit to come on her last night, about midnight last night." And was she just sitting there calmly somewhere, or what was she? She was to? sitting. She was sitting very. She's in a wee bit of a woodland beside Glen Park State, which is completely overgrown with um, weeds, nettles, and briars. And she was just in the middle of it. He was fit. You couldn't have seen her. You could have walked past her. She wouldn't have moved. Just sitting down, so tight into the ground. But it was just that the whenever they could see the vision of her through the heat through their night vision goggles. Mm. The poor thing, she hadn't gone far. She must have been frightened, maybe. Well, she was probably frightened, but she's probably where she was, where she was when you sit back down and think about it, that's where she felt safe in her territory, that she was in safe things. It was all completely covered over, that nothing was coming near. Mm. Was there any trouble catching her then? <laughs> yes, we had a bit of a problem together. She's so fast, so you can post her at all, she just jump and pounced, and all you hear is bump, bump. Bump and the way she's away, just just no stopping. It was now we had it finished. We set a net up and we got her netted at the finish. That's how we got her caught at the finish with a net. Right, that was about midnight last night, was it? I was just shortly after midnight last night. So yeah. how has she been since? She's back into our enclosure. Uh, we've put a small enclosure up and we put Jeffrey, her companion, and Jeffrey and Winnie together in the in the enclosure together now at the moment. So getting back to reunited together again. Mm, you need a high fence now. A high fence now, definitely, that covered over and completely, she's not going away again. Do you think Geoffrey was happy to see her back? 
Jeffrey was delighted to see her back. <laughs> so we, was, we were so delighted to see her back herself. So it's all like worked out so Listen, well. Listen, you, you must have been delighted because when we were talking to Killian, he was saying you wouldn't know how far these things could get, you know? She no, could have been anywhere. She could have been anywhere. And we've had reports of her 30 miles as far as Dublin Airport. We've some of the emails and people he's contacted is, is unbelievable. Other people have been looking for her. So I'd just like to put a big thank you to everybody who came here voluntarily to come and help the search for her. Oh, you know, uh, it was you, absolutely first class. We never couldn't believe it. I don't know if you if you've ever cameras. I don't know if you've ever seen Richard in in the long term car park at Dublin Airport. There's these massive hairs, like they're huge, they're the size of big dogs. And I just wondered, did somebody see one and think, oh, that's the wallaby? When there was a lady going to Barcelona on a holidays and she sent us an email to say that she was on tick-off, she's seen the wallaby on the runway. There you, you see? <laughs> so, <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> so absolutely playing to get, to get one back again. Richard Beattie from today with Claire Byrne. Well, were there any positives about the pandemic? On Morning Ireland, Mary Wilson was looking at how our understanding and attitudes changed towards mental health awareness. The COVID pandemic had a positive impact on people's attitudes to mental health and the stigma around mental health. The annual Attitudes to Mental Health and Stigma survey carried out by Amorok for St. Patrick's Mental Health Services shows some significant improvements and more acceptance of mental health difficulties. But more education is needed and already there are signs that the advances made during the pandemic are falling back. Gary Kiernan from West Clare has been telling our reporter Una Kelly about his experience with stigma surrounding mental health. I was diagnosed some years ago with uh, severe recurrent depression. You know, it's a strange thing because what happened to me was I wasn't really that aware of it at first. The first time I really became aware of it was my own stigma. Uh, And what I mean by that is what I call, for me, making a friend of my depression. It was some years after I was diagnosed and I was thinking to myself, have I really accepted this? And I realised that I hadn't. Uh, And in order for me to understand how other people might react to it, I suppose I was saying to myself, well, first of all, Gary, you need to make a a friend of this. You need to kind of look at your own stigma and what is it that I think happens to a person when they have a mental health illness? What is it that, how, how do I view myself differently? And for me, that was then the turning part of uh, being able to, once I accepted it, then that I was more aware of other people maybe who weren't as accepting of it or maybe weren't as aware of the effect that things that might be said in all innocence. I'll give you an example. I know on one of my admissions to hospital after I came out, a good friend of mine said to me, you know, Gary, you need to look after yourself. You don't want to be going in there again. And for me, I thought about that. It's almost as if I voluntarily want to go into hospital, you know, that I voluntarily, that I'm asking for this illness. Like, how would you say to anybody else if they had an illness or they needed to go for surgery, you know, God, you don't want to be going in there again, as if there's something wrong about going in there again. So that's how I think it is subtly aware and subtly experienced by people like myself who have depression. It really saddens me, and, I, and I'm concerned. I'm concerned that uh, although we talk a lot about mental health illness, but we need really to be more, I suppose, not just talk about it, but really accept it. Accept that this is an illness. It's an illness that anybody could have, and it's not an illness that you voluntarily say, oh, I want that. So really 
the, the message, and I suppose that I would would like to, you know, say to people perhaps who are listening, is that you know, when you're sick, you're sick. It's a, don't please don't be ashamed. Please don't see it as failure. The help is there, uh, and the people who love you will want you to seek the help, and that's what's so important. Gary Kiernan there. Then Mary spoke to Paul Ginnigan, CEO of St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. That was very interesting from Gary Kiernan there, exploring his own attitudes to his illness and then the wider attitudes of the public. Does your survey point to that? People having to arrive at their own acceptance of, of the difficulties they have and then the wider public's attitude to them? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, first of all, the findings overall are very encouraging Um, 89% of people say they would tell someone if they had a mental health difficulty. 77% of people would tell someone if they were experiencing suicidal thoughts. So I I, I think that's 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 Mm. showing great advancement over the last five years. But on on the flip side of that, there are some findings that are still quite concerning. For example... 68% 68% of people believe that being treated for a mental health difficulty is still seen as a sign of personal failure and 22% would consider it a sign of weakness if they sought help. So I think what we're seeing is a pattern of growing awareness and acceptance, but our knowledge and understanding of mental health, particularly mental health difficulties, th- th- there's a lot of work to be done in that area. It's a survey of 500. Because it's an annual survey, you have been able to chart what changes along the way. What is interesting is that you felt there had been strides made during COVID, but some of those strides are now going in a backward direction again. Yeah, I mean, COVID obviously placed us under serious psychological pressure aside from all of the other issues that occurred. But out of that, we see that 45% of people introduced new ways to manage their mental health and their mental wellness, which is fantastic. Uh, 54% said that the pandemic presented an opportunity to reflect on values and priorities. And then we saw changes in the workplace, for example, 51%. But the worry, I suppose, is that there was a permission in 2020, 2021 to talk about our distress. Everybody could relate to that distress. I think now as we get back to the supposed norms, uh, first of all, the, the pressure on us increases. There's a lot of change still to cope with. And then on top of that, I think people's maybe tolerance is getting a bit tired. So we, we, we really need to continue to not just educate people and and I think there is a need to have uh, good education Mm. programmes both at preschool level at primary school level and at secondary school level absolutely at at preschool level lots of great work has been done around emotional awareness of of course it's got to be age appropriate but if you start there and work it through society wide campaigns are really are really important but Mm. I think primarily what Gary has, has really identified is that personal journey we all have to make that personal journey that says actually Addressing mental health difficulties is not in any way a weakness or a failure. Mm. In fact, it's a very brave step. Yeah. And we should really try and acknowledge that. It's significant as well among the figures that you have there and that you've given to us, Paul, that 91% believe there's a prevalence of anxiety in our society. You know, first we had COVID, which probably exacerbated that anxiety. And now we have a cost of living crisis, which is going to exacerbate further the anxiety of people. Yeah, and we, and we shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate the impact of the conflict in Ukraine, the the, the war in Ukraine, because 
that has had a massive impact, particularly on young people, because young people have had to cope with lots of different anxiety provoking changes to their life through COVID. So there's lots of things happening that are, and I think anxiety has become a real issue for us. We've got to acknowledge that it's there, address it and give people the mechanisms to be able to cope with that anxiety. Paul Gilligan, CEO of St. Patrick's Mental Health Services from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, 100 years of art on our stamps. Amanda Coogan was talking to Ryan. Wait, no, wait till I tell you. Timbromaniac uh, oh, today. Okay. And a philatelic um, yes, uh, sorry. collector. Okay. These are my new words in my vocabulary because um, uh, a piece of art of mine is on a stamp. And I couldn't, I'm, I'm almost have imposter syndrome. I'm so kind of delighted and excited about it. Um, the on post, our, our lovely on post have launched a hundred years of art on a stamp, and the the mad people in there in 2013 put this uh, little piece of work of mine called the fall on a stamp, and they've reissued issued it here to celebrate a hundred years of on post and of stamps, and the idea of stamps is just glorious. Isn't yes, it? You I put love this it. Little little sticky backed piece of paper on an envelope and it can fly all over the country and all over the world yes uh, and so i am uh, to, to say the least proud as punch i have to say uh, that you can get uh, art on a stamp in every post office around the country at last from today I and think, yeah. the stamp in question uh, that, that i want to talk to you about is your piece as you say called the fall and i'm looking at mm. you here wearing um, an amazing uh, yellow dress and shoes uh, mid-air having what looks like you've just come from the top of a ladder onto a, a yellow mattress. So it's a spectacular photograph of, of a moment in time from your piece called The Fall. Can you explain yeah. to us what The Fall was? Yeah, um, uh, Davy Moore was the brilliant photographer who took uh, that photograph. But um, over four hours for 17 days, I uh, jumped off a ladder and tried to fly, I suppose, is the idea of it. This great idea of creativity and the dream and wanting to achieve something. And then, of course, I fell. Um, so also the kind of idea of, of failure. And what, what I'm, I'm misquoting Beckett here now, fail, uh, fail again better. That great kind of permission that we give ourselves to not, um, not be afraid of failing, I suppose. Uh, and performance art, you see, is this kind of hybrid new art form, somewhere between the visual arts and, and theatre and dance. And so it, you really put the body in view, I suppose, the body, my body or people that I work with uh, body and we're communicating it without language, without words, I suppose, that differentiates it from theatre. Yes. And, and really... And you did you, you did that for 17 days. I did. Uh, yeah. How many times a day did you jump off the ladder? Oh, uh, thousands. <laughs> were you, were you, because were you, were you the okay? idea was that I couldn't not do it. I had to keep striving to achieve. I had to, you know, the idea of the work, I suppose it's a conceptual piece of uh, contemporary art, was that I had to get back up off my beautiful mountain that I... Uh, landed on, which was covered in you know proper uh, gym mattressy mm-hmm. things, so I didn't break my back. Um, 
And I had to get off that and climb up the stairs again and get ready to fly again well, it's, and again it, 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 and again and over and it, look it's a great picture and it's a great uh, place to see you on the stamp you're joining uh, other artists on different stamps include James Ingram Peter Wilbur Louis Lebrocki uh, Patrick Scott Robert Bala Nano Reed, Harry Clark Paul Henry Orla Kylie Philip Tracy Alice Marr um, Finn Dack and Mazer and um, Amanda Coogan right there from um, <laughs> I know, yeah. Don't tell anybody. They might realise they've made a mistake. No, they haven't. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Go and buy the stamp before they realise they've made a <laughs> Worth every cent. Worth every cent. Uh, Amanda, congratulations. One, one euro and 25 cents. You can buy contemporary art on a stamp. A masterpiece. I think that's a good thing. Amanda Coogan from the Ryan Tiberty Show. And in the morning, Claire Byrne was looking at trying to control the amount of sugar teenagers are consuming with dietitian Louise Reynolds. So teenagers have a lot more freedom than younger children when it comes to choosing the foods and the drinks that they're putting in there. Yes. How important is it that they avoid the high sugar stuff now coming into the winter? Well, I think there is a lot of discussion at the moment about children's nutrition and probably parents nowadays think a lot more about it than maybe our parents did or certainly my parents did when I was growing up. But, you know, it's really important that teenagers, we know if anybody has a teenager in the house, they grow quite quickly, uh, quite dramatically often, you know, particularly teenage boys. So nutrition is still really, really important. And as you said, very often they might have, you know, pocket money, they have part-time jobs, they have more disposable income if they're out with their friends, they're going in and buying things things themselves. You've a little bit less control than you will have with the younger children. And I think that's the difference between now and when we grew up. We didn't have access to all of the junk that you can potentially go out and buy now. It didn't exist. I mean, there were were some sweet things, but we didn't really have the money to go and buy it. No, we didn't. And um, and also the idea of kind of walking along the street, having your, you know, takeaway drinks and coffees and things like that. That wasn't something that we did. And now, you know, some of those drinks are really laden with sugar. And so, you know, and actually I was listening coming in in the car to your previous discussion about the obesogenic environment that we're living in. So there are a lot of opportunities out there for teenagers, for all of us, but particularly for teenagers, you know, to kind of maybe have a think about the choices they're making. Now, we know with sports, you know, there are lots of teenagers now who will learn a little bit about nutrition, which is great from their sports coaches or if they're involved in a team sport, whether it's in their GAA club or in school, they will get some help and and information around nutrition. And hopefully parents have kind of, you lead by example, really. So, you know, a lot of those um, sugary drinks, the high energy drinks, as they're yes, marketed, yeah. they're they're marketed at teenagers, aren't they? Yes, they definitely are. In terms of the extreme sports that they're linked with, the excitement, and very often the very colourful branding and marketing that that goes along with them. So certainly, they are something that really teenagers don't need in their diet. Um, certainly the sugary drinks that we're, if we're talking about just a fizzy drink and um, not the, the energy or, or high or sports drinks, we know that they're very, very high in sugar. And in fact, we think that message is getting through, Claire, because there was a health and behaviour in social age, uh, in school aged children, which was released um, this year. And it kind of is, is monitoring over the years, the changes in children's nutrition and eating behaviours. And there was a large decline seen in the consumption of sugary drinks. In fact, the largest decline across Europe were seen in 
in Ireland, England and Norway. So we know that now the number of teenagers who are having um, a fizzy drink every day has decreased from about a third right down to only about 6%. So that's good news to think that they are less, you know, regular foods. Now, again, there was a difference in socioeconomic groups. So in the lower socioeconomic groups, there was still higher consumption than that. So there's still lots of work to be done. And again, as you said, they're marketed particularly at um, teenagers. So in terms of sports drinks, they're you know, they're very high in, in calories and sugar. They're kind of replacing what you might be burning up if you're doing an intense session of sport. But if a child is just running around kicking a ball, they certainly don't need to be having a sports drink afterwards. Or not running around at all. And or not then running consuming around at all. it and you're running into yeah, problems. Absolutely. And they can often be seen, they have a sort of a, maybe a cool image, you know, because they have this kind of branding. Also the portion size, some of them come in really large cans of 500 mils. It's half a litre. Um, so again, if you're looking at the sugar content of those, you also have to look at the portion size. So some of those can, you know, also contain caffeine as well. I think we've spoken about this before. The sports drinks often contain caffeine or the high energy drinks, I should say, not the sports drinks, the high energy drinks. Um, and again, you know, every time you go in, there's such a, a myriad of them on the shelves. You did a little survey, though, of some of the popular drinks and you went through how much sugar they have in a much smaller serving than that you've just been speaking about. This is 200 millilitres of fizzy yes. drinks. So a 200 mil would be kind of an average glass if you were pouring a glass. You know, a can, if you're buying a can, is about 330 mils. So it's not even a full can of these drinks. Yeah. So, you know, a 200 mil glass would be a, a small glass that you'd give, you know, that you'd have a, a glass of milk at home or a glass of water. Um, and again, some of those range from, you know, two teaspoons right up to about seven teaspoons of sugar. Now, what that means, our average intake, what the WHO recommend is that we should be getting these free sugars. So this sugar is all just added sugar. So it's nothing like the sugar that we get in fruit and vegetables, um, which is intrinsic sugar or the sugar that occurs in milk. That's kind of really... Added sugar. Added. This, this is added free sugars, which is the ones we need to be aware of. Can we go through them? Because I think people will be really surprised. You mentioned one serving of a 200 milliliter drink, which has the equivalent of seven spoons of sugar. That's the highest. And that's club orange. Yes, yeah. And I mean, it's also, it's not that different from some of the Coca-Colas that are there as well, you know, so they, and whether it's kind of five, six or seven teaspoons of sugar, you know, we wouldn't really need to split hairs over the, the amount. The, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the difference is that those are something that children don't need. They would be on the top shelf of the food pyramid. If people kind of remember back to the, the food pyramid where it kind of gives us an idea of how we should choose foods for our diet. They're all at the very top. And the recommendation is very infrequently, not every day, maximum maybe of once or twice a week. So Pepsi has six teaspoons of sugar in 200 millilitres. Coca-Cola has five. Uh, Dr Pepper has five. And then you come to Fanta Orange, Seven Up and Aldi Sparkling Orange and they all have two. They all have two. Yeah, so they have a different composition in, in there. And, you know, again, you might think, OK, well, if I'm going to make a choice, go for one that's slightly lower in sugar. But what I would say is if you're going to enjoy those drinks, have them as an occasion with a meal. Maybe it's a celebration. Maybe you're, you know, out for a restaurant, out in a restaurant and you're saying, OK, you know, have a, a fizzy drink if you want one. But by having these in the home, in the fridge, easy access all the time, yeah, it's a lot of sugar. And the other people who aren't keen on that would be the dentists. So the Irish Dental mm-hmm. Association, you know, they have highlighted that three quarters of all 15 year olds have some decay in their permanent teeth. Louise Reynolds from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, how long will the war in Ukraine last? 
Dr. Mike Martin is an author and speaker on conflict at King's College London and he was speaking to Anya Lawler. Dr. Mike Martin, in your view, six months on, who is winning? How long more does this continue? Hi, uh, good morning. Um, I, I think actually what we've seen over the last month is quite interesting. What's happened is the momentum has moved from Russia to Ukraine. So up until that point, Russia was making the big moves and Ukraine was having to respond. So we saw the obviously the initial attack on Kyiv and then the Russians changed their objective and said they were going to focus on, on the east and the Donbass. We had lots of reporting on. But actually what's happened over the last month is the Ukrainians have transitioned in a small, limited way to the offensive. And so they, they pushed into Kherson in the south. And now over the last uh, two weeks or so, we've seen all these attacks on air bases or naval facilities in Crimea, which is the kind of Russian strategic centre of gravity. And that's forcing the Russians to move their military assets around to defend against Ukrainian attacks. So actually, I think there was a tipping point it was about a month ago and now we're seeing the momentum go mm-hmm. with the Ukrainians. So I think this is the, this is the beginning of, the, of a new phase of the war. And when we see the Russian Defence Minister Shoigu this week saying Russia has slowed down its uh, offensive operations in Ukraine out of concern for the civilian population. Um, well, clearly those people in the, radi- uh, the railway station uh, didn't experience that. Do you think that's an excuse for slow progress? Oh, I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, we see we, the, the sort of Russian information operations are becoming increasingly uh, less and less plausible. I think it comes back to this idea of momentum, right, that I was just talking about. Momentum's vital in war. You want your enemy to respond to you rather than the other way around. And what's happening is that the Russians are being forced to respond to the Ukrainians. So they need to come up with a narrative which which explains why they're having to do that in a way that makes it seem like they've still got the momentum. But I Mm. I, I mean, it's mostly for domestic consumption, isn't it, in Russia? It's not really believed by anyone else. But, and here's the big but, um, while the Ukrainians, it may be advantage Ukraine at the moment, they may be corroding Russian logistics in Crimea. Mm. But at the same point... At some point, they have to go on the offensive. At some point, it's them trying to cross the Dnipro River. It's them trying to use the very few bridges that go into uh, Mm. Crimea. Mm. Are they capable of doing that and when? Uh, So I think it depends on how they intend to do that. If we're talking about the Ukrainians attriting the Russians and pushing every last Russian soldier out of Ukraine, that's not going to happen. The Russians have got a, a, a huge amount of mass in Ukraine, and obviously they've got a land border right there that they continue to feed, albeit poorly trained conscripts, but you know, they can continue to feed that machine. What the Ukrainians are hoping to do is something quite different, which I think plays to their strengths. They're more highly trained, they're quite agile, and they've got pretty high-tech weaponry um, from the West. So what they're hoping to do is, by doing spectacular type attacks, uh, command and control, logistics, as you said, but also partisan attacks behind the lines, drone attacks on Russian naval assets, hitting the bridges behind Russian troops. They're trying to create fear and panic in pockets of Russian troops. So rather than having to defeat them, perhaps they might give up, go home, collapse, collapse. you know, retreat. But yeah, here's, the, here's my final question then, yeah. Dr. Mike Martin. Mm. Uh, three billion more from the US and Ukrainian aid yesterday. But the question is, how long will that support last from US and from Europe after a winter of soaring inflation and energy prices? Exactly. And that is Putin's gamble. 
Putin's gamble is that he can use gas as a lever um, over the winter. I think the most important thing to note there is that the two biggest, the three biggest uh, uh, suppliers are the US, the UK and the Baltic states. And I think all of those are going to continue to supply, even if other countries like Germany and France drop away because of the, the gas issue. Dr. Mike Martin from Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking Tom Cruise, fear of flying and finding life-changing opportunities with helicopter pilot Andrew Woods in New York. The world is great from where I am. It's still dark uh, just outside New York, but it's, it's going to be another lovely day. Oh, what a great city. So we're, all, uh, we're all set. A great city. And, and it, it's uh, New York has come alive again after the, being in the doldrums like everywhere else. It's great to see it, 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 it return from, from, from Kansas to Oz. It sure has. There's lots of Europeans are back in, in, in New York in the last three months. It's great to, great to see them, great to have them. Things are, things are as close to, to what we call normal as possible, certainly for these summer months. So let's hope it continues. I've never been in a helicopter tour of the New York, uh, of the city of New York. So I heard. I, so I've, I heard, I, which is uh, yeah, terrible. No, I, no I, I was on the Grand, I, was, I did the Grand Canyon um, in, an, right. in a helicopter and it scared the the, the hell out of me because my feeling would and a bit like the New York thing is if it just clips a building they're so tall and it just kind of freaks me out so how will you unfreak me as an airline pilot which you are you are, you not airline I should say helicopter pilot in New York how will you defreak me out what are you going to say to well, me well in your case um, typically uh, I, I would meet you before the tr- before the tour yeah so I might sense a little bit of nervousness in, in pre-flight departure chat, just just the, the normal stuff where you'll see um, a, a nervous tendency and you'll chat to the passenger, reassure them that, first of all, it's probably part of a family occasion. So there's something amazing going to be achieved here. We, we get the flight with all your family and we get the photos to prove that you were here after, after the flight. So back to the flight. Uh, people look at my face I'm no longer the young man I used to be Um, I suppose they they, they see me and look at me and say I'm probably pretty calm doing what I'm doing and I assure them that I've done this uh, many many I'm doing it in in New York for 12 years I've over 10,000 tours to my credit without incident met many nervous people along the way as I say departed with many nervous people but never actually brought one of them back and I suppose what happens is after the, after the initial chat, I would put somebody like you in the front seat. Yeah. And the first thing, your reaction is the, the, the massive view you get from a helicopter. Um, you're familiar with, with travelling and airlines, so you're used, to, you're used to windows that probably aren't much bigger than a, a 20 euro note. Yeah. And suddenly when you sit into, into a helicopter, yeah. you've got this 180 degree vision. You're up front in the cockpit, so it's, it's all action. You're on the headset. You can hear me speaking with ATC. Mm-hmm. You're in the loop with everybody in the helicopter. And what happens in, in, in it is your, your expectation of New York, first of all, if you think about it, most people listening this morning are very familiar with New York from TV and movies. So on the day of someone's tour, there's the expectation that they're on the, let's call it the New York movie set. Yeah. And what happens is mind over matter takes place. I've seen this many a times. It's actually where I learned what it really meant. 
when somebody comes with a perception of what they think is fear in their mind, what we do is fly them in the helicopter mm-hmm. and so many new facts are brought in by their own eyes to their brain that the fear they left with simply is pushed out the back of their head and it realistically takes place by about the two-minute mark, which is when we meet the Statue of Liberty, which is statue is an amazing sight. When you see the statue with your own eyes, it just that's that's where people lose it. That's when you get the first smile. You see people physically relax beside you, and after that, it's the person then that's going to enjoy the tour is that person who left with that perceived negative. Uh, I suppose, fear they never really had. It was only an imaginary fear. So Ryan asked Andrew how he came to be flying helicopters in New York. You're from Dublin, flying choppers... I'm from Glasnevin, in, in New York. Fly, flying choppers around New York. How? How? Why? You? What's happened? How now? Why me? Um, it, 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 it was a lucky break, actually, that got me to New York. A very good friend of mine, Keith McMahon, from, Keith is from Ballyfermot. I'm sure his mother's listening to you this morning. Great. Uh, Eileen, Eileen uh, McMahon and Ballyfermot Road. But her son, I was with her son 10 years ago, um, I suppose, 12 years ago. The wheels had fallen off the wagon in Ireland. I was flying helicopters in Ireland and with the recession, they were disappearing almost daily. So I was having a casual meeting with, with, with uh, Keith over coffee and he said, what would you like to do? I said, you know what, given... Um, any wish, I'd actually like to be flying helicopters in New York. He'd never heard me say that before. And he said, write down this number. So I wrote down this number and I called it later on that evening and I got speaking with another great Irish guy from Dublin, Fred Hanna. And Fred actually said, you know, we're looking for a pilot with exactly your qualifications right now. I said, tell your boss, I'll be with him on probably next Tuesday. So we had, I met the boss, the owner of the company, sat down with him and he said, uh, let's fly this afternoon. He liked the way I flew, he liked me and I got the gig and here we are ever since. Amazing. And it's been, it's been, it, it is an, I'm lucky. I haven't worked in 12 years. I've enjoyed every single day. It, it, it's amazing. It just I, is. I was only saying before we, we uh, talked this morning, Andrew, that about um, the man I met yesterday in Mead Street um, in the bookshop uh, who was weaving and he'd been in insurance for X amount of years, a few decades at least. And, you know, sometimes through circumstance, through economic catastrophe, through global pandemic, you're forced to make decisions that you wouldn't have done ordinarily, but actually Mother Nature, your God, whatever it might be, had predestined you to do, to end up doing this, which puts you in a better place and a happier place. Well, a very good friend of mine, unfortunately, uh, he, he died a couple of years ago, Aidan Murphy from Dunshockland. Aidan always said to me, Andrew, what's for you won't pass you. And he wasn't at all surprised to see New York suddenly appear. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing to, to, to meet ordinary people and fly them on what is quite an amazing tour uh, and to enjoy it as much as I did the, yesterday or last year or five years ago. There's just some, there's a magic in New York that I know mm. you understand. Mm. And there's, there's, an, there's um, I suppose, what is it? it's like a stage and you're on the stage mm. and you're part of people's bucket list. 
they bring you on something they might have been saving for years and thinking about for years and today is their day and you're part of it. Now, mo- most of our experiences are incredibly happy, obvi- obviously, but some of them aren't. And, you know, I meet some very, very sad circumstances. Um, I remember meeting parents one day and they were hold- basically between them holding up their 12-year-old daughter before they, they were they were loaded onto the helicopter. And when, when they got onto the helicopter, they explained to me that their daughter really wasn't very well and it was one of her last mm-hmm. wishes. And you know what? That's when... That's when I broke down because I thought, you know what, imagine the flattery of being, you know, sadly part of someone's last wishes and it's to fly in a helicopter in New York and you're going to do this? So you bring some joy to an incredibly sad occasion. Another hilarious one was about about three years ago, before the pandemic, we do a lot of engagement flights Mm around Valentine's Day. So <laughs> typically two people will fly in the helicopter, there's loads of room. So, you know, halfway th- through the tour, you're expecting the screens and the, you know, jubilation from, from behind you. Anyway, this this particular day, we're flying along, we're flying along, and I'm thinking, well, you know, surely we're getting to the stage that she said yes. So I turned around and I, I, I said, is everything okay? So she's looking out w- one window and he's looking out the other. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh dear. <laughs> and uh, we landed without a word being said. And I, I could see the front gate of the heliport from where I landed. So basically they walked in through the terminal, got to the front gate. One of them walked left, one of them walked wow. right. And that was the end of it. But but so so many more things are happy. You meet a lot of people here doing the tour who have who are celebrating getting over may, maybe a, a major illness, getting mm. the all clear from a doctor after a few years of therapy for, for different things. And they're now going to uh, kick everything on the bucket list off. And again, you're part of it. And it's amazing what, it's like, it's like copter confessions. People sit in and I suppose it's it's the excitement of it and they tell you the most amazing things about their life within 30 seconds. So we get to Hollywood star Tom Cruise. Well, I actually uh, met Tom, excuse me, I met Tom on Sunday. I picked up um, Tom um, at an airport and flew him into New York with his sister Cass. And we had a, hal- a hilarious few minutes, uh, myself, Tom and Cass. Uh, when I met him, I reminded him actually that I'd met him many years ago in Ireland when his movie Far and Away was mm. being made. And I was lucky enough to be invited to uh, a private night in what was Flannery's The Temple Bar. A friend of mine, uh, Hugh O'Regan, owned the bar at the time and he invited me saying, look, we've somebody special going to join us tonight. I had no idea who it was, but it was Tom Cruise mm. and his wife at the time, Nicole Kidman. So I reminded Tom on Sunday about having met him. Now, look, of course, he didn't didn't remember me. But Tom was so enthusiastic about his time in Ireland that it was actually flattering for me. Tom loved his time in Ireland, make, making far and away. He loved the night uh, when he had uh, his pint of Guinness in, 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 the, in the Temple Bar. And uh, I suppose that's where it kicked off. So... Obviously, everybody's in a hurry, so we, we took off for New York and uh, we're, we're flying along having a chat. And uh, so at one stage, he, he, 
Tom flies planes and helicopters, as you probably know. You've seen the movie, and Tom has this inclination to spend a lot of time outside of the airplane <laughs> or outside of the helicopter. So I thanked him for, you know, overcoming the urge to, to be on the outside. My sister just, just burst out laughing. She says, you under, understand Tom quite well. Um, we, we landed. Tom's a great guy, so... Um, I said, can we get photographs? He says, absolutely, absolutely. Tom is the sort of guy that... Um, Tom, The Tom I met is the Tom people expect him to be. He is, he is he's Joe regular. He really is. Tom, Tom is, is, is a guy who enjoys being Tom Cruise. Yeah. That's the impression I got on Sunday, and he's just up for it. Uh, I, I met him actually off the plane in, 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 in Teterboro because when they're ringing us in to meet these kind of people, we parked the helicopter rotors running beside the plane. So Tom gets off the plane with his sister and, of course, the ground crew wants selfies with Tom. And So I'm watching this. Tom made all the time for people, absolutely made a lot of happy faces in Teterborough on Sunday. And also when we got him into 30th Street, the ground crew there had no idea who he, he was coming. And when they saw who it was and realised who it was, he did the same thing. And you have to admire that from, from somebody, you know, that, that's, whose movies have, have grossed over $14 billion. Tom Cruise likes people and it shows. Good on him. And can I ask you, Andrew, um, about your Uncle John? Yes. Tell me a little John bit. Yeah. John Kavanagh. John, my, my mother's... Uh, my mother's youngest brother, John Kavanagh. Uh, John died in 1967. He was flying. It sometimes it upsets me, but with tears of joy, and I okay. mean that. Okay, take your time. Because he, he's, part, he's part of my success here. Even after his death in 1967. John went out one day as a 19-year-old pilot in Erlingus and never came home. His plane crashed in Ballymadon in Ashbourne and uh, crashed, went over, flipped on his back and and burned for six hours. So John, his his lifelong friend at the time, another cadet pilot, Rory Power, and their training captain, Hugh O'Keefe, died instantly. And uh, I suppose... That's the re- I don't know if that's the reason for from, from my interest in aviation, but it's certainly a part of it. John's brother, David, my other, my favourite uncle, uh, an air traffic controller, he, he, he's actually only retired from air traffic control in Dublin in the last few years. Mm. So I was never going to get away from aviation, but um, I, fly, I fly with John's wings. The, the John's, Erlingus presented golden wings to John's, my, my grandparents, John and Anna Kavanagh mm-hmm. and uh, I wear I, I wouldn't fly without John's wings really? literally I wouldn't fly I wouldn't even cross the Atlantic and I go home to Ireland a lot always happy to do so jump on the Shamrock in Kennedy and head east I wouldn't even travel as a passenger if those wings I don't obviously wear them when I'm flying but I, I would have them in my bag I wouldn't actually get on a plane without them there's something amazingly lucky and um yeah, yeah. It, it, as I say, it, br- it brings many tears of joy. I'm sad he's gone, but I feel him around a lot. And I know when I started to wear his wings when I came to New York, 
there was something about it that I felt the man was happy to 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 sense that his wings were actually flying once again. And uh, yeah, I've been wearing them ever since and, and proud to do so. Andrew Woods from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Morning Ireland, Pat's chat, poet and presenter Pat Inglesby is 80. The well-known and much-loved poet and former radio presenter Pat Inglesby turns 80 today. Children of the 80s will remember his RT children's TV shows Pat's Hat and Pat's Chat. He's the author of more than 20 books of poems. He's also written a number of plays for stage and radio. In November, a feature-length documentary about his life called The Peculiar Sensation of Being Pat Inglesby will be released in cinemas. The man behind the documentary is Seamus Murphy. We'll talk to him in a moment. But first, let's hear Pat reading the Malahide poem, where he talks directly to the polio virus that infected him in his childhood. Did I make a sound as you were going past? Was that the way it happened? Was the wireless on? What could you hear? Are you still alive? Are you still doing your virus stuff? I'd like to know your name. Mine is Pat. I played soccer in spite of you and I was good. Seamus Murphy, good morning. Good morning to you. Why, Pat? Why did you choose Pat Inglesby as the subject for a, a feature documentary? Well, in some ways, Pat chose me because I, I, uh, I was making a short film about Dublin for The New Yorker back in 2013. And I met him for the first time and we got on very well and I loved his work. And uh, the, 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 the film did quite well and he, he liked the film. And he said to me, look, a lot of people have, have asked to make films about me or do television pro- programs, but I don't, didn't want to do it. But if you want to do it, you can. And uh, I was delighted to, to do it because he's, he's a unique talent. Um, somebody that I think, you know, he, if, if he's known in Ireland, he's known mostly for his television career. But actually, you know, as a writer, that's what really fascinated me. And, and you know, publishing 25 books of poetry, mm. you know, each book you pick up and, and you're just staggered by the, by the, the humour, the humanity. I mean, the, the man before me now was talking about homelessness. You know, Pat was selling his books on the streets for 25 years had a huge connection with people that were living on the street, you know, people with problems, because he, he himself had mental health issues. So I wanted to make a film about his life told through his poetry. Um, and he had, you know, a very storied, very interesting life, very, very difficult life at times, but, you know, a huge, a huge survivor and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully funny man. I mean, his poetry is really, really funny. Give us a, a small insight I- into the documentary. Well, as I say, it's, it's, it's really going through his life, you know, going through all the books. I had a huge task in, in knocking down 25 books of poems into whatever it was, 25 poems or 30 poems in the film. Seamus Murphy for Morning Ireland, marking the 80th birthday of Pat Inglesby. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.